Autocratic or authoritarian leaders work to control just about everything that affects the lives of those they rule, particularly information. Restricting the news and information individuals can access makes them reliant on the state as they make sense of the world. It can also make them easier to rule. Authoritarianism and information are the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio today are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Arturis Rosanis. Rosanis is an assistant professor in New York University's Department of Politics, His research focuses on authoritarian states, electoral competition, and statistical methodology. He joins us in the studio after traveling to Miami on a visit sponsored by the Havinghurst Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies as part of the colloquium series on Russian media strategies at home and abroad. Arturis, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. You gave a talk earlier about the way autocrats uh, manipulate economic news. So I'm just going to ask you to start the conversation. Why should anyone care about that? Well, I think it's a very important question these days because one of the things that political scientists have found when they studied the development of authoritarian regimes uh, is that modern autocrats, the ones that rule today in the age of mass media and mass communication, are actually very different from what we would imagine as standard old school dictators like Hitler and Stalin and Mm -hmm. Mao. So old guys, right, the older guys, they usually tend to rely on things like very heavy ideology, very hard-headed propaganda and repression, especially mass repression. And when people start looking into how these political patterns have developed recently, what they notice is that we have a, a bit of a new breed of autocrats that are really relying on this idea that Look, what we're doing, we are good economic managers, right? Mm -hmm. What people want, they want economic growth and wealth. And as long as we're able to deliver it, we are good. People are not going to protest on the streets. People are not going to oppose us, right? So then the question becomes, how do you exactly, right? How do you exactly to establish this reputation of being good economic manager, right? And since a lot of news about reputation or information about reputation comes from the news, right? Then the question is, Right. If something bad happens, if the economy is not doing as well as it should be, when you are a good economic manager, what do you do? How do you control mm-hmm. that information? So I think that is a fundamentally important question because precisely of the way present-day autocrats position themselves politically. Could you, could you talk about that study of Channel One where you uh, looked at over 300,000 news reports over, I think, a 17-year period? And talk a little bit about what you think your key finding was and what what may have surprised you. Right. So there, there are two sets of findings that uh, we have in that particular research paper. And uh, when we started the project, we really sort of approached it very intuitively and sort of naively. We thought, OK, what would be the easiest thing to do when things are bad on the ground, right? When the economy is not doing well and... When you expect that the newspapers, right, the internet and the television is going to report that the things are not going well, right? And we thought the easiest thing to do would be just to censor the news. That's the definition of being an autocratic government. You have ability to do that, especially on the sources of media that are controlled by the state, right? And so we set out and we devised a a method to measure the amount of censorship of economic news 
on Russian state-owned media, a, a statistical model with the help of which we were we think we were able at least to measure certain aspects of censorship. And without going into details now, what we found is that we found basically no tractable evidence of censorship of bad economic news. So then we thought mm. further and we thought, okay, when bad news are reported, we started looking into how those things are done. How are the bad news reported? And we started noticing a certain patterns, and that happened sort of inductively, right? We started seeing, look, that whenever or many times when bad news are reported, usually they are reported in conjunction with certain attribution of those bad news. We started seeing, look, bad things happen, right? Something bad happens in the stock market or something bad happens with, uh, with oil prices or things like that. They start attributing those news mostly to external factors like global economic forces, like the actions of foreign governments, especially the United States. And so then after this sort of inductive period, we decide, okay, let's actually take the stock and let's try to see if that is a part of a more systematic pattern. And again, without going into details, we devised the way to measure the degree of what we call selective attribution. Bad news attributed to external actors, good news attributed to mm. internal actors mm -hmm. like Putin. And we found that there is a very big asymmetry in terms of how good and bad news attributed. So that would be the two main takeaway points. We've, we've spent some time meeting with people that are in the, the official statistics world. And there have been many stories. There's, there's fundamental principles of how official statistics should be done. And, and the potential for government, you know, kind of mismanagement or manipulation is, is pretty high. One of our guests, Andreas Georgiou, was, was in the Greek system for many mm -hmm. years. And the results of his work led, was in conflict with what the government wanted to say. And I, I just find that this idea of, of kind of the control of the message of, of what's reported by official statistics seems like a really powerful tool and something that is a really a, a major goal for an organization, right. for a state to, to control. Right. So, so how do you, you know, how, how do we support kind of the, the people that are working in this, the, the trying to produce, you know, the, the, the quality, unbiased, you know, kind of independent assessments of economic health of countries? The government statistics, you mean specifically government statistics. So I think yes. that is actually one of the most fascinating areas. It's not exactly my area of research okay. of how government statistics are manipulated. But uh, I have a colleague of mine at NYU, Peter Rosendorf, who actually has written an entire book about this, of how when do governments present, first of all, statistics transparently, because that's another way of manipulating information is just not giving information. And, and that's that, one of the rules in that fundamental right. principles is transparency. Right. So Right, you know. exactly. And then the second thing is once you provide information, whether you distort that information or not. And so what I think, the way to make this pro process, right, to induce incentives, right, to make this process more truthful is by really trying to calibrate the official statistics against the things that we can observe, right, and that cannot be directly manipulated by the government. For example, right, China, let, let's take China, and there has been some studies done on that. It's not my study, but there have been a few studies done on that. So people at some point started really doubting the official growth, GDP growth statistics in China, right? And then they started looking, okay, how can we actually see if these numbers are distorted or not? And then they collected data, for example, on things that you can measure without the help of Chinese government, like, for example, nightlight density, which is measured by satellites, right? And you look at it and you try to see, okay, how does nightlight density correlate with economic <laughs> growth? And you see one pattern in 
in developed democracies, right? And you see a different type of correlation, right, in places like China, right? And be, be, uh, using that particular measure, people are able to show, look, there is some political aspect, right, to that, that there is more distortion of these official statistics at the time, for example, when there are important political developments inside China, right? Again, things like you can calibrate it against observable data like the density of roads, right, or the railways or any other economic, observable economic activity, right? So if everyone knows that this is going to be done, the incentives are going to be there for government, right, to actually release more correct statistics because you don't want to be found out to be lying. <laughs> that would be my take on, on this issue. Very interesting. Thank you. You talked uh, in your in your study of uh, Channel One, you, you just spoke a little bit about, you, di you didn't find evidence for direct censorship, but you found evidence of uh, what I think you called economic information ma manipulated through selective attribution. And you talked a little bit about how bad news is, is attributed to external forces, but talk about the good news, the economic news. Who claims credit for that? Yeah, so uh, numerically speaking, we find that basically 25% of all good news that have good economic news that have been reported, right, on Russian TV one channel uh, in the 17 years were actually attributed to Putin, okay, mm. 25%. So one of four events that can be coded as a good event, right, was attributed to Putin. And then you ask the question, okay, how many, what percentage of bad economic events that have been reported, right, have been attributed to Putin? And the number is not exactly zero, but in statistical <laughs> language, we, we, cannot reject, we cannot reject the null hypothesis that the number is actually zero throughout 17 years. And then we also find an interesting thing that there are a lot of negative and bad news that are attributed to Russian officials, right? But again, Fewer bad news attributed to Russian officials than good news. So there is a discrepancy in, on, on that dimension as well. So your, your focus has been a lot on these economic, economic indicators uh, yeah. and outcomes. Uh, are there other types of information that, that are, that's commonly manipulated yeah. in these new regimes? Yes. So, uh, of course, yes. So the, one of the puzzles for us was precisely that, because when we were going into the study, we knew many anecdotal facts right, that Russian state-controlled media actually censors information. It censors information, for example, about the incidents of political protests. Hmm. And uh. censors all information about corruption of officials, corruption of government members, right? None of that information is anywhere to be found on Russian official state-controlled media. So we know that it's, they are doing that. In fact, censorship on the Internet is even more interesting. There are thousands of websites that are officially banned by Russian government. And the way you know that they are banned is you try to enter those websites mm -hmm. from Russia and it's going to give you a message. This website is inaccessible according to the following set of laws that are in operation of government. We think this website is promoting extremist ideas. So usually every dictator says that mm -hmm. the ideas which disagree with him are extremist ideas. So Putin <laughs> is not new in, in, in any regard with that. So when we were going in, we expected to see also a lot of manipulation or censorship of, of economic news. And we didn't found any, right, relative to political news. And I think the reason is precisely that people have a lot of information, individual private information on economic matters, right? Mm. 
which is quite different from the information they might have about political matters. So mm-hmm. I might not know if I live in province, right, somewhere in Russia, I might not know whether there was a protest in St. Petersburg or not because I wasn't there. But I know that the prices have increased, right? If I go to grocery, okay. I know that my neighbors cannot get jobs, right? So it's very difficult for the media source to come out and start manipulating thing information on the things, right, that people can observe. Oh. So again, what I'm emphasizing here, there's always the ability, right, for citizens to observe some outside information constrains government's ability to censor it. Sort of going back to the to the earlier conversation about government statistics. So if we provide more information about potential economic performance in that country, again, it's going to restrict the government's ability to censor, mm-hmm. we believe. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're with Arturis Rosanis, who is at Miami University, on a visit sponsored by the Havinghurst Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies as part of the colloquium series on Russian media strategies at home and abroad. Arturis, so every government manipulates information, right? They, they, it is, they want to make sure that or at least spins information, right? Obama spun information, um, Jacques Chirac spun information. Um, how, if you are someone who is reading this and reading these news stories, and maybe you don't know something like uh, RT is a state government uh, news agency, um, how how would you suggest people sort of navigate stories in a way to help them understand? How the information is being manipulated, and whether it is a manipulation that is, I don't, I don't want to say like valid, but um, there's got to be levels of manipulation. How do you sort through that as a consumer to figure out whether a, a news outlet coming from Hungary or Russia or or Romania is trustworthy? That's a an extremely difficult. <laughs> so I would say two things. So one thing that you can do here at ease, right? That Russian citizens cannot do with the the similar ease is that you can access information from multiple sources with the same amount of ease, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to television, it's pretty much monopolized in Russia. There is an opposition TV, but it's on on internet, right? And it has a lot of difficulties to, to, to reach to reach Russian citizens. So because now here, if even if you receive biased and spinned information, as I do believe you do, right, you can at least sort of check it. You can at least see if that is if the point made in one media source is universally agreed, right? That's one thing. And the second thing, and this is one of the uh, ongoing uh, research projects that we are working on, is sort of idea trying to understand how what would be effective ways to raise the literacy, the media literacy. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so one one sort of project that we have in mind right now is actually to use some of our results of our previous study, right, and try to see how, for example, if we provide people with information about the degree of selective intribu- uh, attribution on Russian on Russian media, would that actually affect mm-hmm. how they evaluate the credibility of the source? With the idea being here is that, well, if I tell you right that in the last seventeen years. Russian state-owned TV channel has never criticized Putin, right? If I just tell you that information, you must, we believe reasonably, to think, think that there's something, something going on, right? But that is a statement that citizens, right, can calibrate against their own experiences. That's very important. That's very different from saying, hey, this is a biased media source, or hey, here's an NGO from the, from the United States that says that this is biased media source. You cannot really verify that statement, right? But if I tell you something that can be intrinsically verified Mm -hmm. from the consumption of the source itself, the conjecture here, right, the expectation here is that 
it, it could be effective. Now, of course, I'm telling about this experiment that we're going to do in the future, and if people learn about it, it's going to really mess up with our results. So. <laughs> well, well, we won't tell anyone, none, okay. of, none of your study subjects. So it's, I really think that's an interesting idea, the idea of calibration against your own experience, the idea of the intrinsically verifiable outcomes that are measured, particularly with, with the economic outcomes where you can think about your own life experience or your neighbor's life experience. But, but the, the idea of, of measuring some, some more ephemeral components, mm -hmm. I mean, even the idea of, of, an, of the degree of autocratic I don't know if that's the right word, autocratedness, you know, what is it? <laughs> you know, that, as you think about kind of measuring yeah. intensity of some of these uh, um, less tangible outcomes, what are, what are some of the ways that you approach yeah. problems like yeah. that? So in, in one of our research projects, we were studying the, the coverage of Ukrainian affairs mm. on Russian news after the Crimean annexation and when the two countries essentially entered into a proxy war, right? And uh, we tried to identify whether, in fact, you know, if you look at it prima facie, you would observe Russian TV and you would sort of see, okay, it's biased towards Ukraine for obvious reasons that the two countries in war, are in war. But how do you establish it systematically that that was actually the case? So one of the things we were doing, we measured, we took every article or every news report on Russian state-owned television, right? that concerned Ukraine, and we evaluated the sentiment of that news report, right? Mm. And then what we, what we did, we tried to see if there was a structural break, if there was a very significant break in the average sentiment of how Russian news reports on Ukraine during the fallout between the two countries. And what we actually find is that, well, there was decent amount of, of coverage of Ukrainian affairs on Russian TV, but it spiked massively during the Euromaidan protest in Ukraine, in Kiev in 2013, and especially after the Crimean annex mm -hmm. annexation. And so we showed that there was a big spike and a big break. And we also that we also showed that the same spike is associated with massively reversed sentiment. So if, if before that, the coverage of Ukraine was fairly neutral, we found that afterwards it became significantly negative. Mm. You were talking in, uh, today about uh, conspicuously biased media can be persuasive. Yes. And you were also talking about, which often reminded me of the discussions we've had in here with statisticians about uncertainty. Uh -huh. And you were talking about what you could prove and what you can't I prove. See. So can you talk a little bit about the problem of whether, you know, you study whether media is biased or not. How do you know if it's persuasive or not? How do right. you know yeah. what how, how the audience is responding to bias in media? Right. So I think we can I think we can evaluate empirically certain aspects of the problem, but I think certain other aspects of the problem are almost beyond the reach in some sense. You called it unprovable Unprovable, today. right. So let me make the following distinction. We can ask the question, let's say, the question that we ask in one of our research projects is, well, did Ukrainians who watch Russian TV, did they vote differently than those who did not vote, right? And to answer this question on surface seems like simple. We could just compare people who watch TV and who don't watch TV, but that is, of course, problematic because people decide whether they will watch Russian TV based on their pre-existing sentiments. So what we do in that project, we exploit this natural experiment that happened in 2014 when Ukrainian government banned uh, Russian cable television inside Ukrainian territory, but some people who lived in the vicinity of Russia were still able to get 
the analog TV channel that was spilling over from the Russian territory. And the way that the, the, the broadcasting, the quality of the broadcasting signal varied depended a lot of times on sort of natural topographic features, right? So some people were not able to, to get access to Russian TV even if they wanted. So what we did, we explo exploited this natural experiment and we found that, yes, there was an effect in the sense that people who had access and watched Russian TV were more likely to vote for pro-Russian parties. Mm -hmm. So we, we think that we are able to show that. What we are not able to show and what we think is fundamentally unprovable, unprovable is whether actually the presence right, of this Russian TV in Ukrainian territory had an effect on the outcome of election. Mm -hmm. Because that is a much more compounded quantity, right? A lot of things enter into winning election as such. And so I think that fundamentally it is unprovable because we cannot turn back the history and ask how would those elections look like had there been no access to Russian TV at all, right? So I think these are two different things, that there was a behavior effect on behavior of certain segments of population versus the effect on the aggregate political outcomes. And therefore, I think we should be much more careful when mm -hmm. we talk about effects of informational campaigns on election outcomes. Very good. Fascinating. I mean, really, mm -hmm. really interesting. So I'm, I'm curious, how did you get in, get involved in this work? I mean, what, what led you to this, to this, this pursuit, this, this research? So I, I think the story is actually very simple. I live in New York City. And in 2014, I was walking on the Broadway and I saw this big billboard that was advertising Russia Today channel. Mm. So Russian Today channel just started its big operation, right, and wanted to spread in the United States. And they were making this big informational campaign. And I thought, well, this is really, really something new. Like you would not see, you know, so uh, advertisement of the Soviet news channel right during the Cold War. So we are playing a new game. We're entering yeah. some new territory. And at the same time, of course, because I was very interested in, in the affairs in, uh, in Eastern European region, affairs that have to do with Ukraine, with Russia, right? I was following what exactly Russian media is saying. And so I knew that a lot of information is twisted and spinned in a very interesting and sometimes conspicuous, sometimes in a very subtle way. And I was just interested to see, well, how does it work? So the anatomy of the thing, how exactly do they spin information? And if they do, whether it is effective or not. So it's really very accidental in some sense. It just hit me. One one picture hit me, and I thought, okay, there's probably a story here. Yeah. So uh, let me follow up with, what's been the most surprising thing that you've learned in, in this recent project? I think the most surprising thing was actually that we were not able to find evidence, hard evidence, detectable evidence of censorship of bad economic news. That was really something that I did not expect to see. In fact, the initial idea behind, you know, it's stories and stats, the initial idea behind the story in this project was that we decided, look, we have this interesting new way to measure certain aspects of censorship on news media, and we're going to write a paper, right? We're going to write a story, right, about how to do this thing. And we're going to illustrate it by showing, hey, this is how you can apply it to the case of Russia. And by the way, this is the amount of censorship that we find. And when we didn't find any, we decided to look deeper and to understand what is happening. So that was an interesting surprise, which I think led us to even more interesting finding in some ways. But yes, I'm going to ask a question I know you can't answer, which is, um, do you think that the Russian government knows this? that they don't need to censor economic wow. news 
or that, but they do censor political news. I mean, that, that, that finding is there, but they don't need to do, you know, are, are they thinking about it that, that hard? That Oh, I, I, I think that they would censor if they think they could do it effectively. Because mm-hmm. I think that it's still fundamentally easier on part of people who actually produce the news. The way I understand how this thing works in Russia is that I don't think that government tells them exactly how to spin things, whether to say something or not to say, and how to say things when they say them. What I think is that if they create an expectation of how the news should be reported in order for them to be perceived favorably. Mm-hmm. And that is a work of editors and journalists to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. So my thinking here is from the perspective of a journalist, from the perspective of the editor, if bad news really arrive, right, the, the stock market crashes, the, 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 the price of the national currency starts falling, things that actually did happen in Russia a lot of times, right? A much easier way would be just not to say anything about mm-hmm. it than to try to think creatively, well, how do I make this now into a good thing, right? So I think in that sense, it would be easier for them to do that. But I think precisely because they also they are not only expected not to report anything bad, but they expected to report in a way that is actually effective, right? That there is this natural constraint on their mm-hmm. ability to 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 not uh, to underreport bad news. Mm-hmm. Well, Arturis, thank you so much. Is all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.